This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Design constraints on problem players. The Bloody Benders. Somerset Fairy Doors. And the Goat in DM Problem. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crinkle of Doritos bags, and the smiling countenance of Frampton on the cover of Frampton Comes Alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly, even quotidian confines of the Gaming Hut. And Robin, here in the Gaming Hut, of course, everything is perfect. Everyone is uh, ready to play, ready to roleplay, ready to add their flanking bonuses or subtract their sanity. But every now and again, someone enters the Gaming Hut who perhaps has not fallen to its perfect shag-carpeting, fake-paneling ways. What do we do about problem players, and do we have to do it at the table, or can the designer help us out? Yeah, I thought I would focus particularly on uh, the design issues involved in helping people with problem players, because I think you and I would both say, uh, if you have a problem player in your group, try a little bit to sort of guide them in a better direction, and then don't play with them. Um, But that is a harsh thing to say, and something that a lot of groups find, for whatever reason, very difficult to say, and therefore... Like, uh, the problem player is the guy who brings the Doritos, or owns the copy of Frampton Comes Alive. Right. Or is someone that you feel a sense of sympathy toward, and uh, he's 
they're your friend and you don't want to have the hard feelings think, that would be associated with I think we can use the he for this. I'm pretty yes. sure that um, as, the, as the dice fall, the majority of problem players are boy players. Uh, statistically speaking so far, at least. <laughs> yes. uh, may, may we have a... Let's hope for a future of a parody in which... A uh, future where... Where, where lady players are just as god-awful as boy players. Right. So, for example, when I've been uh, gotten playtest feedback uh, over the years on various tabletop role-playing games, I have on occasion gotten response saying, well, we have this player in our group who's always, always does X, and your game doesn't do anything to stop him. Uh, or, you know, we have this uh, person who dominates play and, and your rules don't uh, give him anything to do uh, when he's not dominating play, or, or whatever the example is. I don't want to bust particular uh, people or groups or whatever. But my feeling is always that I am loath to supply the solution to this problem because any rule that you install that constrains problem players also constrains everybody else. And quite often, uh, and there's a particular, there are, I think there are a particular couple of types of problem players that are, are particularly going to make people want there to be design solutions to them. Uh, one of them is a, a player who is just a spotlight hog and dominates play. And then, but even more so is the player who basically, uh, we hear a lot about adversarial jamming, but of course there's adversarial playing as well. And I think there's a subset of our tribe who view uh, the rules uh, with the GM as the deputy for those rules as an obstacle to be overcome and that they want to break and subvert the rules as much as possible. And so that's where you get the dreaded rules lawyer of uh, your, who's probably the first type of problem player ever identified in the history of gaming. And the thing is, is that if you, the solution to a rules lawyer seems to be to make the rules more airtight. But <laughs> Warriors in real life have always thrived on the complexity of rules. Exactly, yes. The, where lawyers don't thrive is where everything is ruled by the arbitrary whim of one man. And uh, so the the ideal you know, anti-rules lawyer set is the GM decides what happens. Hope he's in a good mood. <laughs> <laughs> right. And because of the fears of adversarial uh, GMing or DMing, uh, a lot of people uh, really object to uh, DM fiat as well. And sometimes that's because the DM is being abusive. And sometimes that's because they don't want to hear no talk or nonsense about the spirit of the rules. They're interested in the letter of the rules because they're hoping to find ways to exploit them and find ways that they're broken. And given the amount of time realistically that can be put into playtesting any set of tabletop role-playing rules, which is basically commensurate with the eventual size of the audience. So if you've got some a massive player base as in the case of D&D or Pathfinder, you can have a massive playtester base, but you will also have an even more massive number of people uh, trying to break those rules once they appear in public. And then people, and nowadays, of course, it's, it's not even a challenge to find the rules exploits to, uh, you know, the, the hosey power that's out of scale because there's a hive mind working on it. And as soon as you hit the forum for whatever game it is, you can see that, you know, double chain attack or whatever it is, is hopelessly borked and you can then take advantage of it, which I think sort of takes a lot of the fun out of being that kind of problem player. But then again, I don't really see why that problem player is having that kind of fun anyway. Yeah. You're, and you're not the guy who goes and, uh, 
uh, has fun with the video game by knowing all the cheat codes ahead of time. So it's a different kind of person. Yeah, I, I think that the mathematical demonstration of what you just said is that it took uh, D&D 3rd Edition, had a two-year playtest cycle that probably reached uh, something on the order of, you know, it may have reached five digits, five uh, digits worth of playtesters, and it took about eight months for there to be 85 pages of errata. So I just don't think that you can out-playtest a rules lawyer. You can't even out-playtest a rules exploit-exploiter. And, you know, I come back to the wisdom that S. John Ross shared with me at the sort of the beginning of my design career. He'd done a little more than I had at that time. And he always said to me, you can't make a set of uh, foolproof rules because fools are too clever. You can't make a game idiot-proof because idiots are too smart. And you can't make a game break-proof because breakers want it more than you do. So don't bother. Make a good game, and then if someone is going to bring an exploitive bulldozer to it, they're going to bring that to whatever game you designed and try to create a game that creates a community of players who will not up with that put, right? What you want is a game to create a feeling at the table such that rules lawyering is seen as bad social form because just like the thing that prevents real lawyers from destroying society, social shaming. And so <laughs> if, if, you, um, uh, if, if you can create a game environment that is worth playing, that game environment will defend itself through the same means that, you know, human society uses to defend itself. And I think that at some level, yeah, it's, you're, it's incumbent on you not to create an obvious exploit, or if you do, hang a lantern on it and say, this is the obvious exploit. If you're the obvious exploit player, try this. But, you know, at some level, you, you can't really out-design someone who's, who's an, antithetical to your design. Right. If, if you spot, you know, in your crunchy bits, if you spot something that somebody points out a ghastly combo that is woefully overpowered, um, the solution to that is just to uh, pull back on the numbers or one, of one or the other power so that they don't interact in that way. And I don't think that's an example of designing in order to defeat a particular problem player type. That's just doing your job. And there are cases where something's going to slip by you that no one's going to point out and play that combo until uh, six months later. And then, yes, you do have to issue an errata. And maybe in the you know future of electronic publishing, there will be much more of a seamless process where uh, you can hit a button on your uh, super enhanced PDF or whatever the newfangled version of electronic documents will wind up being. And it automatically updates all the uh, errata for you. So that becomes... Uh, seamless to the player and therefore less humiliating to the designer. Um, but that's um, that's not an example of a rule structure, and that's not an example of adding additional complexity. But the more that you have to install, uh, you know, more complicated procedures or things that make it harder, for, that pa more paperwork for everybody uh, does more to punish everybody than it does to constrain a particular problem player. Now, you can have rules that you introduce that uh, overcome a particular uh, endemic weird thought problem. Uh, and the key there is to make sure that they, if you are installing something like this, do it so that it impinges as little as possible on play. So an example here are the drives in Gumshoe. And basically the problem player that they are there to address is the person who, uh, again, is an adversarial player. But here the adversarial move is to uh, make the GM jump through hoops to engage you with the story. So when uh, we send off uh, 
Trail of Cthulhu adventures to be playtested by Call of Cthulhu players using Call of Cthulhu rules, sometimes we got a note back saying, well, our guys just didn't want to go to the island where the monsters were. Well, you're Call of Cthulhu players. You're supposed to want to, you're supposed to, your job is to have created a character that wants to go to the island. And so in Trail of Cthulhu, the characters have drives, and what you do at the beginning of the game is you select a drive, which might be uh, curiosity or in the blood, or uh, which is the you know you have deep one DNA in you impelling you to go toward weirdness, or you know, and there's a long uh, list of them, and they differ from gumshoe game to gumshoe game, and some of them games don't actually require drives. But at any rate, uh, so that's something that you pick during character generation, and then if it ever comes up the uh, GM points to it and says, well, uh, actually, your drive makes you want to go to the island. Do you want to explain why? And then that does what any game should do, is it turns around onto the player the duty to engage with the very basic premise of what it is that you're playing. But it's a, And there are penalties if you decide to go against your drive, but those are almost never invoked. Uh, that rule is just there in order to make that point, and therefore it's invisible to the 95% of players who understand that they're there to engage with the premise. I think that a lot of times, you know, when you say such and such is for problem players, you do have to look a little bit at the question of what's a problem, because you can imagine a group that's all combat monsters in which the role player is the problem player, or a group that's all role players, in which the combat monster is the problem player. But neither of those are really problem players under the meaning of the act, right? They're just players who are working in a different style and speed to the rest of their group. And again, that's not something that the rule set can do, except to provide doors in for players with all sorts of styles. I think that, again, the the guy who doesn't want to engage with the game is not always, you know, a problem player. It may just be that the rest of the uh, group um, didn't want to play, you know, di- didn't want to play D&D, and he did, and so he has to play Call of Cthulhu, and he's going to um, uh, be the guy who asks the logical question of why are we in this graveyard at night. But you can you can certainly argue that within the confines of a Cthulhu scenario that that's a problem player. Similarly, in Knights Black Agents, players who don't want to get off the dime and investigate are problem players, but in that, not only are there drives the actual game setting creates a mechanism to get you off the diamond investigate, which is to say vampires will come and kill you if you don't get off the diamond investigate. And so I think that there's a degree to which you can put not just rules elements into the game, but setting elements into the game that will create. And and again, I don't necessarily want to say constrained problem players, but create the desired type of, of game space. And uh, you can do that with any number of things. You can do that with, rules that clearly value combat, and so the problem player of the guy who d- never wants to get into combat is um, either alighted or moved in, because if they're not in combat, they're not actually engaged with the game as it is played. They don't get the combat rewards or whatever. And simultaneously, if you want to encourage uh, the, the the dramatic interaction, have dramatic interaction rules that then reward that behavior so that players of that sort are drawn into the game as opposed to drawn away from the game. And I think that you can have any number of those sorts of, and that's not even a design system, it's more of a design module or a design goal than anything else where you're saying, 
I want to make sure that X sort of player is happy in the game and then provide them a thing to do. And that is, you know, that's as simple as going back to the Robin's Laws of Good GMing and identifying the types of players and saying, does everyone have something to do at the table? Just like if you're doing a dinner party, you make sure, is everyone going to enjoy something that's on the dinner table, table, right? Right. And you want to make sure that if you, I guess the test for me as to whether I want to address complaints about one particular play style or another is, does this also serve another purpose? So, for example, one thing that you do want to make sure in a crunchier game in order to uh, kind of lessen the impact of spotlight hogs is to make sure that they're, that you have good niche protection, that you don't have an omni character who, as in some editions of D&D, you know, the uh, magic user eventually is better at everything than nearly everybody. everything yeah. uh, than everybody else. And that's, uh, and I think the, the justification for that in those designs is that that character has to stick around for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of play of being uh, lousy and crummy, uh, which is a pain. I don't think it was ever consciously designed as a spotlight hog issue, but at least there you got to pay your dues for a long time by uh, being afraid of being bitten to death by centipedes until finally you get to be that Omni character. But it, in general, if you aren't careful and have uh, you lose track of your niche protection, the spotlight hog player is going to gravitate to the uh, character, the, the Omni character who can do everything. Now, some players like to play kind of a jack of all trades and, and for stylistic reasons, but that doesn't mean they want to take over play and they're content to have a character who is sort of second best at everything. And that makes them feel cool as, as someone who has variety in what they're doing. But for uh, the spotlight hog and in a crunchy game, you do want to make sure that they're not able to find the one character who can outshine everybody else and, and get in there ahead of uh, everybody else. And I guess you also uh, want to make sure that there aren't characters uh, that come with a sort of a social implication for the player who is really there, just not as an adversary to the GM, but to all of the other players. So again, the early classic dysfunctional thing there is the way that thieves were originally portrayed in D&D and, uh, you know, 11 to 13 year olds everywhere figured out that it was more fun to stab each other in the back and have, <laughs> uh, interparty uh, conflict. And they were not and, wrong. <laughs> and they're not wrong. But after a while that becomes stale and there's always one player who uh, doesn't get the memo about it having gotten stale so that you want to make sure that uh, you don't have kind of a baked in dysfunctional dynamic between the uh player type uh, the character types that is part of their chrome or or the you know the whole thing with the paladin where if some people really enjoy having the power to, to constantly be petitioned by the rest of the group for permission to do things and then have the fun of turning that down and that's sort of a variant of the uh, premise rejector except now he's rejecting premises put toward him by the other players and that gives you an emotional power in the group but it doesn't make the game any more fun mm -hmm. and so you want to make sure that you're uh, avoiding this classic early example of f20 role-playing in any future games that you do because we've learned that again uh, fun for a while shows you what role-playing is a drag over time especially given the sorts of players who tend to gravitate toward that character type yeah the um you know again it, it does come back to S. John's wisdom that you can't actually out-design any of these types. You can't uh, out-design the 
a guy who won't get off the dime and go into the mansion because he's like, all right, I'll pay the sanity. Now I'm useless and I'm not going to go in the mansion. Fine. Um, you know, you, you, you just can't make someone play a game. That kind of is the difference between game and, you know, canal building. But, you know, at some level, you have to accept that if you've designed a game that 80% of the audience wants to play, and that's probably high, you're probably done, all right? The 20% are going to have to shift for themselves. You're going to have to leave it to brute uh, primate uh, reality to force them to play uh, or force them out of the group one way or the other. There's just no, you know, you can't design a any sort of human interaction so that it's um, uh, got no uh, sharp edges or nothing that a determined moron can't impale themselves on. You can't do that with marriages or congressmen or anything. So I'm not sure why we, amongst all other human interaction, are expecting to uh, cater to every single possible dysfunction. And at least we have, for most games at least, a deputy you know, on the scene. We've got a deputy marshal right there who, bottom line, can say, this is not working, either straighten up and play right, or stop it, and don't come on Monday, right? Right, and I guess maybe what you can do, though, is if you're aware that you have a design that plays better for certain types than others is you can you can sign in a sidebar that. absolutely uh, signpost it yeah. yeah so if you so for example drama system if you've got a, somebody in your group who you want to always be able to play with but who can't have the spotlight off them for very long uh hill folk very explicitly uh equalizes spotlight time mm-hmm. and uh there's not much you can do about it if you're not in a, a scene that somebody is called the Assumption is that you're going to sit there and enjoy what other people are doing for a little while and then get your time in the spotlight later and do something that pings off what they did earlier uh, and informs that. So it's, uh, A, hopefully just entertaining in in and of itself to uh, watch other people play for a little while, and B, you can find something in that that then drives you on to do something interesting later and build on what they're uh, doing in a scene that you're not in. But if you are incapable of that or you know that one of the main people, the one who furnishes the play space or the uh, snacks or, or what have you, or the person you, you know, you, you want to kind of look in on them every week to make sure they're okay. Uh, you know, they, you should know, I guess, as a GM uh, that that's the kind of game that uh, in this instance, Hill Folk is, and maybe that isn't your uh, choice until you find some other uh way of making sure that person is okay or you have snacks. And then the social signaler uh, methodology also works, because if you are the type of player who is heavily gamist, a, a tactician uh, type player, um, you will look at Hill Folk and you will recognize very rapidly that it does not have the signifiers of those kinds of games for you. And you will either have to say, what else about this game is appealing to me? Or you will say, well, I guess I can't play Hill Folk. I will go and play um, uh, Aces and Eights with some other people and have a different kind of good time. Because the game itself is creating a space that signals what kind of space it is in the same way that vegetarians don't usually go into steakhouses and then get irate because they've found themselves in a place that serves meat, nor do lifelong carnivores haunt South Indian restaurants and then be stunned and amazed that there's no meat on the menu. It's just, you know, it's a sorting mechanism, and all you have to do is just make sure your sign is bright. Right, and that's why uh, a lot of people are heavily engaged with the project of defining out of the genre the things that they don't like. Yeah. So they will argue that it's not even a role-playing game because it doesn't it's have the not a restaurant if it doesn't have role-playing. meat. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, well, on that uh, on that note, I think it's time to uh, head down the street from the restaurant uh, to the ice cream parlor, or perhaps a deadly, deadly inn. 
The creaking of wagon wheels and the chirping of locusts on the lone prairie suggests that we've entered a particularly pioneering episode of the History Hut, or if we had a History Hut, we could duck into that. But instead, we have to, uh, since we're in uh, what is going to be Labette County, Kansas in the 1870s, uh, perhaps somewhat trepidatiously enter a particular hotel that, uh, like Hotel California, you can uh, check into easier than you can check out of. Ken, we're here to talk about the Bloody Benders. These are mentioned in the diaries, though not the children's stories of Laura Ingalls Wilder, for a very good reason, and that reason is... The reason is that her father claims to have been part of the posse that um, uh, hunted the Benders unsuccessfully, as it happened, uh, or was it unsuccessfully, question mark, dun, 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 because her diaries imply that her father was uh, did, in fact, find the Benders, and that would be telling uh, to say what happened, but I guess to start, we should say who these benders are and why one is hunting them. They were four uh, people, uh, John Bender and John Bender Jr. and Ma Bender and Kate Bender. Uh, fall of 1870, the male benders uh, settle and they build themselves a, a cabin grocery store roadhouse type place on the Osage Trail. Uh, Ma and Kate join in spring of 1871. Uh, Ma has uh, herbs and stew pots and... Uh, a little of this and a little of that. Kate, on the other hand, has a beautiful red hair and a beautiful Kate to go with it. And that is, I think, the thing that sort of gets people uh, to start stopping off at the Bender place on their way uh, south or on their way north. And it turns out... And she's a spiritualist and a psychic as well. Yes, she is. That Ma Bender and Kate Bender are both spiritualists. As, as in fairness, is most of the neighborhood. The, the whole area has been settled by German spiritualists and German... Uh, pietists from that uh, wave of, of German colonization. So it's not uh, as crazy as a bunch of Germans settling, you know, in the middle of a, a stolid Yankee uh, congregationalist town. This is this is a German part of Kansas full of German spiritualists. So it's not it's not zany or or standouty. The thing that's standouty is uh, the fact that every so often people come to town and then they don't leave town again. Uh, what happened was uh, they would sit down. Uh, to dinner in front of a large uh, canvas curtain that separated the front of the shop from the back of the shop. And when Kate would uh, serve them food, they would be distracted, and John Bender Sr. would hit them in the back of the head with an enormous sledgehammer. And the ones that did not die immediately from being hit, uh, Kate would finish off with a knife, or possibly John Jr. might shoot them. There was apparently bullet holes that were found in the Bender house, although I'm not exactly sure since there was not a a forensic examiner on scene, uh, how many of those bullet holes might have just been done by sporting locals. <laughs> yes. Just just random shootings through walls at, at that period mm -hmm. was not necessarily a proof of anything. But in uh, the spring of 1873, the uh, physician William York of Independence, Missouri, who vanished on the road and people sent word down because his brother turns out to have been uh, the colonel at Fort Scott, Colonel Edward York, and his other brother was a state senator, Alexander York, and that's the kind of guy who just can't vanish. And so they um, uh, they, they get the local word out to find this guy, and the local town has a town meeting, and they say we should probably search everywhere in town to see uh, if this guy's body is anywhere. No one looking at anyone specifically. Benders, we're not looking at you. <laughs> and so the day after that meeting, pretty much, um, the... Uh, Benders sort of pulled up stakes and left town. 
and uh, they found that the uh, Bender's team and wagon had been gone. The Benders were gone. Uh, they went out, and uh, it isn't actually the next day. It was a little bit later, but anyway. But the, um, uh, the they go out, and they start looking at the Bender place, and they go down to the cellar, and it turns out the cellar is co- co- covered, choked, if you will, with clotted blood, because people have been storing dead and not quite dead bodies there for a while. And they begin, uh, and they, there's an underground passage that leads out into the garden. They go out through the passage. They start digging near where the passage lets out, and they find somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 bodies and eventually pieces of more, uh, so that the death toll is generally set, I think, by sort of sober historians at 20, but I've seen estimates as high as 104, looking up at the benders for my own fell purposes. Um, the benders probably got off uh, over the two-year period with $6,000 in cash, plus, of course, all of the personal possessions, horses, and such like that they could sell for profit uh, elsewhere. So it's not a bad gig to spend uh, two years murdering people, even on the Osage Trail in Kansas. And there are cases of a couple of people who uh, got away because they resisted uh, sitting in the sledgehammer and chair. Mm-hmm. And uh, John, uh, or Pa, as he was known, got... Uh, somewhat uh, visibly irate, which seemed suspicious. Mm -hmm. And so they, uh, uh, I think somebody got kind of cocked on the head still nonetheless, but got away. But at any rate, uh, so you got a, and that's why we have a sense of what exactly the MO was. MO was. And there's also, oh, and I guess another thing about these is that the benders were not actually benders, nor were all of them in fact related. Well, we don't know that for sure. That is probably the way to bet, certainly. But all of the people who said that Pa Bender was actually a guy named John Thickinger who drowned himself in Lake Michigan 15 years after the fact are just saying, well, look, a dead German. That must be the guy. Um, there was another guy who uh, it turned out was murdering people with a sledgehammer up in Montana, and they thought, maybe that's a Bender. And let's uh, put him in jail until we can get a guy from Kansas to look at him. But that guy decided to saw off his own foot and died uh, of foot sawing, as it turned out. <laughs> it turns out that's a terrible idea. It's, it's not a good way to go. And by the time the guy from Kansas got there, the body was too rotted up to be identified one way or the other as um, uh, uh, John Sr. And so, you know, there was a rash of Bender sightings after the Benders vanished. And the posse that Laura Ingalls talks about was uh, the, the rode out and, and looked for the Benders, and it found, according to the posse, it found a an abandoned uh, wagon uh, shot full of holes and carrying uh, the groceries sign from the Bender's place was in Thayer County, which was nearby. And uh, a private detective uncovered word of four German-speaking people uh, buying t- tickets uh, from Thayer to Humboldt on the train. And so that's your leads. The theory that uh, Laura Ingalls is implying is that the uh, posse did in fact catch the Bender's and decided to avoid the expense of a trial and just shot them all, uh, leaving their wagon, um, uh, you know, floating around. Uh, hence the bullet holes. Hence the bullet holes. And then went, uh, the, the you know, the sheriff or or, dep- or marshal or whoever was in charge of the posse went to the train station and said, four Germans bought tickets uh, to Humboldt, didn't they? And the guy said, you said it, marshal. And that was it, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah. And so that is Laura Ingalls' story. And, of course, Laura Ingalls, sadly for uh, the world of romance, her family left Kansas before the Benders left Kansas, so it probably didn't actually happen, but you can certainly imagine her dad, you know, telling the story because he was on probably a bunch of boring posses that never murdered anybody, and so wanted to sort of be part of that 
when Laura would say, tell us about Kansas. Tell us about the exciting times we had in Kansas before we moved to the hell that is Dakota. Um, and so I, I suspect that there was a little bit of family embroidery around the, the Ingalls uh, sod fire. Now, there's also an indication that uh, uh, Ma Bender uh, murdered some of her own uh, children, who uh, older children, older than Kate, who uh, inconveniently witnessed uh, the uh, murders of their uh, respective fathers and, and husbands. Do you put credence in that, or is that uh, just uh, more legendary murders being added to the real ones? I think that once you've, you know, first of all, it's certainly possible, right? I mean, Ma Bender is in a murder family, and murder families aren't picky. The family that murders together sometimes murders each other. Some, sometimes murders together, uh, literally. And so I don't know that I have enough to go on one way or the other, but I would also argue no one has enough to go on one way or the other because no one DNA typed any of the bodies that they found in the uh, Bender's land. Would have been challenging at we that don't, time. We would have been very challenging. You know, Gregor Mendel comes over, oh, none of those, these guys are peas. I guess I've done everything <laughs> I can. Um so they, they, there's no proof that any of the people in the, in the, in the garden are, uh, are benders of any generation. There's not any great evidence one way or the other that there were spare benders that then mysteriously vanished. And on the other hand, who can say, right? We don't necessarily know. Uh, it's not as though they were in the middle of a thriving metropolis where everyone was stopping by all the time and, and keeping eye on things. And once all the benders are gone, I think that no one is going to ask a lot of questions about exactly how many benders were there at all times. And since there was never a trial, the state never had any interest in finding out one or the other. So uh, the murder family, as it were, this is a real example of a uh, trope that comes up in uh, pop fiction and is cross-cultural. And I think that's because you can assume that uh, these are not the only people in actual history to figure out that if you are on a frontier that is now populating but hasn't quite yet become uh, fully under the uh, order of the law can uh, make a certain amount of money by uh, offering space for travelers and then bumping them off. So there's I mean, uh, the whole... They don't even have to be on a frontier, obviously. Burke and Hare did it in downtown Edinburgh. They would have people who come into their inn and it's like, well, so uh, you know anybody in Edinburgh? No. Oh, look at that. You're paying with only a very few farthings. Well, let's see what might happen to you. And they'd smother him and sell him to a dissecting guy. Yeah, because we, we don't think of them as fitting that archetype because of the, the whole body snatching aspect is already uh, cool enough that you sort of forget the whole um, murderous <laughs> the part where they got the bodies. Part of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but there's a uh, there's the Dragon Gate Inn uh, legend that is. Uh, made into a Hong Kong movie about every uh, 20 to 15 years. About, uh, and there, of course, they add the element that the uh, guests are being disposed of by putting, uh, being put in these... Uh, Delicious meat pies, yeah. Um, and so it doesn't take much of a leap to go from a murder family to a cannibal murder family, and that's... Uh, the classic so Sawney Bean model. Of course, you have a murder family that's also a cannibal murder family, killing people who are idiotic enough to wander around in South Ayrshire. Give us some more details on that. Oh, do you not know the Sawney Bean story? No, no. Sawney Bean is one of the classic Scottish uh, horror tales. Um, the uh, Sawney Bean, which is sort of a uh, short for Alexander Bean, um, he's born in East Lothian uh, around uh, the 16th century, but people argue about that because the Sawney Beans are badly uh, documented, even for Scots cannibals. Uh, so he <laughs> goes off to... A, they did not go to the Scots cannibal registry as they were expected he, to do. He goes off to live in a, in a cave, 
and starts murdering people and eating them. And eventually he gets a girlfriend who is into murdering people and eating them in the sort of um, uh, uh, Badlands type mo modality, I suppose. Um, and then he and his girlfriend raise up a whole family of Sawney Beans and they murder and eat people until there are a lot of Sawney Beans. And eventually King James, good King James, rides out and slaughters them personally, except for one daughter, Elspeth Bean, who flees to Girvan, uh, ahead of the posse, and then, sadly, the people of Girvan discover her identity and hang her from the hanging hairy tree, the hairy tree, uh, in uh, Girvan. And that is the story of Sawney Bean, except, of course, that there's no evidence that any of it ever happened. Um, the uh, people who are uh, mad about the English say that Sawney Bean is a English uh, story uh, that is told to make the Scots seem like uh, cannibal barbarian monsters uh, as a sort of a good-natured jape at one's northern neighbors. The crummy, uh, pedantic-minded crime historians point out there's no record of any sort of proceeding even remotely like this, although, of course, the whole point of having the king ride out and slaughter people is you, again, avoid the expense of a trial. Um, we're not even sure which King James it is. It might have been King James I rather than King James VI. Montague Summers says the beans were wiped out in 1435. So they become a story about a 100 years after they are possibly wiped out, and then the question is... Is the local Scottish legend the product, like so many Scottish legends, of English myth-making about the Scots that the Scots are now making money on? Or is it a genuine Scottish legend that someone in you know London heard about and said, this will be a great way to remind everyone that these Scots who are going to be tied to our tails with the Act of Union are actually a bunch of murdering uh, Celtic cannibals, not proper Englishmen? So one of the challenges in doing a role-playing scenario about a, a murder family like the Bloody Benders is that you can't really have the uh, players be the unsuspecting guests because there's no such thing as an unsuspecting, unsuspecting player, character. Uh, player character. And uh, any offer of hospitality is, of course, immediately suspect. And if they want to make sure that they're clear that they're sleeping and eating and bathing and everything else in their full body armor and so forth. Um, and so uh, this is probably more of a horror scenario where... Uh, either it's like a fear itself situation where you're just ordinary people in a horror situation, or if your investigators coming in to solve the case that you are, you know, you discover that someone has disappeared and your job is to go in and find out what happened to them. And through that, you uh, discover the uh, importance of the inner layer or whatever it is. And then you have to figure out how to penetrate it without making sure you accidentally sit in the sledgehammer and chair. I mean, you can always have the player characters basically doing the Theseus thing, where it's like, this road is very unsafe, and so you have to go along the road, and each road has a different challenge, and one of those channel challenges, like for Theseus, is, you know, the murderous innkeeper. I mean, Theseus had Procrustes, but, um, and the guys on that road in Japan would have the dragon in, and the guys on the Osage Trail would have the benders, and so the player characters show up, and it's an inn, and they know there's something going on in the inn, and so you probably want to expand it out from, you know, uh, a one-room thing where... Because the Brenders wouldn't even have attacked a, a group of people anyway. They waited for solitary guys. So all, everyone shows up, sits in the Bender house. They get, you know, a weird Wiggins that this is, you know, a little uncool because Ma Bender is, like, giving him the evil eye and Pa Bender is, you know, thumbing his sledgehammer, you know, reminiscently or whatever. But no one attacks them. And so then they have to solve it somewhat investigatively or they have to send in someone undercover and hope that they can get to him before he gets sledgehammered. 
I think that there's a lot of things you can do, even with just the benders. But once you turn it into a bigger establishment like the Dragon Inn, then you have a a, a bigger um, a bigger canvas to to play with. Or you can just go the West Craven route and turn it into the Hills Have Eyes and have player characters get lost, which they do all the time, and discover that the guy who gave them instructions a while back sent them into the Hills Have Eyes Hills to get eaten by the Sawny Beans. Uh, well, on that note, uh, we, as we begin to uh, write our various murder family scenarios, it's time for us to uh, make an exit, uh, hopefully not sledgehammered, into the next hut. once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Chiaran Conliffe asks Ken and Robin, which esoterrorist operation is the Somerset Fairy Doors story a cover for? And Robin, the Somerset Fairy Doors story seems like it could be the cover for so many wonderful things. Why don't you, as the head of Ordo Veritatis, talk us through the fairy control efforts here in Wayford Woods Crewkern? Right, and uh, Sierran might be Kieran as well. Might be so Kieran. let's, uh, let's- Let's pronounce his uh, name as uh, often as we can in different ways in hopes of being right, right at one point. Yes, Charon uh, is very concerned here with Somerset, <laughs> yes. so let us yes. help uh, Karen to... Break to um, uh, ferrying us across the river. Solve the problem. So, um, uh, so basically, there's a, a park in Somerset where, uh, at the time this article was written, a, a, uh, someone had made a little fairy door in the... Uh, roots of a tree, uh, and uh, the first ones were uh, kind of rustic looking, and that became a craze in this park, and all of a sudden, people were going nuts creating all of these different uh, fairy doors, and increasingly, they proliferated, you know, one particular tree had eight of them already, and they went from looking sort of cool and classy to looking like kids' arts projects with all sorts of glitter, and they began looking garish. And so the Parks Authority... It's always the way, to, right? You get a nice little community, and then a bunch of glitter fairies move in and wreck the place. Exactly. And so they had to uh, crack down on this and uh, start removing... Uh, I don't know if they removed all the doors, but uh, they uh, thought this was a... a this fad was getting a bit out of hand and uh, unattractive looking. They have to do sort of fairy zoning control now. Indeed, yes. And if there's one thing fairies don't like, it's to be zone controlled. So uh, in the esoterrorists, what the esoterrorists uh, do is they look for uh, situations that they can leapfrog on that create anxiety in a community and a sense of uh, cognitive dissonance and then slowly ramp those up until something scary and horrible is happening. And then they try to keep the mystic energies going up and up and up until they can hopefully rip through the veil between us and the dimension of demonic evil called the outer dark. Now, there's nothing in the current version of the story that is emotionally destabilizing in any way. It's it's sort of cute, really. Well, except that if you come out looking for a fairy door that you thought was going to be there and it's been removed by those jerks from the park authority. Right. But even so, that's not... Yeah. Uh, there's nothing inexplicable about that. Right. And so uh, what the uh, your local group of esoterists would have to do is they would have to find a way of attaching some sort of sense of menace or evil to the story. And so the obvious thing that they would then do is 
uh, try to make it look like there was a fairy curse uh, and that somehow the actual um, real fairies or little people were offended either by the installation of the doors or by the removal of the doors or perhaps that something other than fairies were coming through them, you know, dread extra-dimensional entities. And so what your local human bad guys would start doing is they would uh, try to find people who are somehow connected to the story and have an escalating series of bad things happen to them. So, for example, the park administrator, whose job it was to decide that the door should be removed, might find their brake line cut, or there would be a satanic in quotation marks uh, vandalism uh, at the park, or uh, more disturbing doors would start showing up in their place. So the cute kids' doors would be removed, and then uh, really, uh, you know, sort of nasty, obscene ones would start showing up. And that would create the sense of sort of broader upset in the community that would allow the esoterists to sort of then have actual magical energies to work with in order to uh, summon something. Or they'd grab a kid that was known to play in the fairy door area, right? The, the, like the fairy door, maybe one who'd made a cute little fairy door that had gotten in the news. And then they grab that kid and they uh, cut off all of his fingers, and then they start putting his fingers inside the other doors so that the kids come and they open the little fairy door, and instead of seeing the cute little bed, they see a severed finger, and they're, ah! And then the cops are called, and they say, well, that was the finger of a little girl who liked to play with the fairies. And that, I think, would sort of get all the all the juju going and start an urban legend, especially if they can either have been kidnapping a bunch of local children ahead of time to set this up and say, this is just the most recent, and then all the other kidnappings are read into the fairy curse story, or they are set up to go after other little kids that have enjoyed the fairy park, so that little kids talking amongst themselves at school know that the fairies are coming after them now. And that is the best of all, because it never gets up to the level of official notice, but the fear and panic is so pure and uh, undis and undistilled that the um, uh, it, it's local artisanal sourced panic uh, that the uh, that the magic energies become really really strong really really fast and without ideally alerting the OV before actual little uh, horrible red caps start pouring out of the trees. Right, and they might want to work their way up too because if they. Um, actually kidnap and uh, murder or mutilate a child, that's not going to just be local news. That's going to go all around the world, and that's going to hit the mm -hmm. Ordo Veritatis uh, database right away, and so they're going to send people out early. So it might be that the... Maybe they start with, like, um, uh, uh, kitty paws or something. Yeah, so if they start with uh, animals first, uh, that doesn't make you know, national news. Although uh, the uh, esoterists themselves might be tempted because, of course, they would get an enormous charge of magical energy from the amount of public distress caused by uh, harm to a child, uh, but then they're also attracting the attention of uh, the Ordo Veritatis. Now, a lot of esoterists don't necessarily even know, they're not necessarily uh, informed enough about what they're doing to be wary, so depending on how you want to construct the scenario, you could still have that really horrible thing happen right away and become worldwide news. And the advantage of that, it might be that you've got one esoterist in the know who uh, gets a bunch of uh, dumb locals to do the horrible thing, and then uh, the one who knows what's going on then, then splits and leaves the scene, leaving the dupes to as uh, people who receive all the attention and gunfire from the uh, player characters. And so that person gets the advantage of having created a worldwide panic uh, that they can use to create sort of copycat events elsewhere. And so if you want to zoom out and make this more of a global event, then you would have 
that person would go to uh, Fresno, California, or to somewhere in Italy, or uh, or to the Hobbit Village in um, uh, New Zealand, or New Zealand, and then start installing new uh, ferry doors, and then uh, just even spread a rumor that a kid had disappeared, or again mm -hmm. actually do it. Um, so the next stage of the operation then would be to start using all of this magical energy, and since it's all centered around the doors, that something would actually start coming through the doors, either right before or uh, while the player characters are on the scene. And so uh, we would then want to envision what an outer dark equivalent of a fairy would be and what its powers are and what its uh, special means of dispatch, if you choose to have one. And that's the way that you can kill, the, you know, a lot of them have a, a weakness that through uh, investigative means you can discover and then uh, dispatch them uh, either more easily or at all. So Ken, what would, what sort of uh, gloss on uh, the fairy demon would we want to have coming through those doors? I mean, if you, if you look back at the original fairy stories, they're all really terrible. Um, I think that you could either go with uh, just a standard little red cap, and he comes out, and he's a little fairy with his with his red cap, which is, of course, uh, soaked in the blood of those he kills, and he just has an impossibly large needle-tooth-filled mouth, and he's crazy strong, and you know, maybe his weakness is literally someone knowing his name, right? Like the Rumpelstiltskin weakness. And so the um, his name has to be discernible somehow. Maybe it's, you know, a pattern of, of cutout letters that's that's been left over after the ransom notes have been sent, or maybe it's in the first names of all the victims that he's killed or whatever it is. His name exists because it's his name that is literally the summoning quality of him. So he's it's the name connection that causes the that that would be the 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 weakness of this ODE, um, even though he just looks like a little red cap and his name is not Rumpelstiltskin, obviously. And you could add a layer to that where the person who discovers the name, if they're not careful, after the case seems to have been wrapped up, will start to have a strange pattern appear in their own flesh and they'll discover a uh, the new red cap growing within them. And so mm -hmm. uh, the danger is that, uh, yes, you can destroy the thing if you learn its name, but if you learn its name, its name lives within you again. So you've got to find mm -hmm. a way to uh, somehow come up with some sort of double blind system in order to end the cycle by getting uh, the name, whether that's on uh, audio tape and no, none of you listen to the audio tape, but then finally you find the current red cap and then you, uh, blasted at a uh, frequency that only outer dark entities can hear and none of the party winds up uh, hearing its name. And so you right. have, again, another sort of big twist in this scenario that takes it away from uh, just the original urban legend into something weird and, and creepy and modern. So I think that uh, pretty well answers the question of how to turn that into an esoterrorist scenario and explains the uh, mythos of the uh, Ordo Veritatis and the Esoterrorist, to those of you who aren't familiar with them, and that frees us up to go to our next segment. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that once more we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send him back in time to bend, fold, and yes, sometimes even spindle the time stream. And this time, uh, building on a suggestion 
given us by uh, Simon Rogers, and I've sort of uh, added a little bit more detail myself. Uh, your task is uh, using time travel uh, rather than assassination. How do you uh, prevent or solve the Ngo Din Thien problem? Uh, he was the uh, president of South Vietnam from the, what is, was it, 57 until his untimely 55, 55 yeah. untimely coup-related uh, death in, uh, was it 64? 63. Oh, right. Of course, it have to be 63. And so uh, why don't you uh, give people a background on why this particular Western-backed leader who was chosen in part because he uh, was a Catholic and spoke English and why those maybe weren't the best qualifications if you want to have your locally-backed leader in a area that is uh, subject to communist insurgency. Well, the, the backing of Diem is that basically he begins as a uh one of the you know many people who are trying to be in charge of Vietnam after the French collapse the Japanese sort of begin by selecting him as maybe their um uh their their local puppet guy and he says no I don't want to I don't want to do that and then he sort of changes his mind and says maybe I do want to do that not being able necessarily to read the fact that being the Japanese's chosen president is not going to be a really good credential he eventually Almost gets purged by Ho Chi Minh back in the day, uh, but dodges out of that and then leaves Vietnam. Um, he becomes sort of the representative of the Catholic minority in Vietnam, which is not a small minority. I mean, it's like a million people, uh, or maybe two million people, uh, by and large, uh, in Vietnam. So it's not a, it's not like he's this tiny fragmentary part, but yeah, the majority of Vietnamese then and now are Buddhists. And, uh, the guys in the north, of course, are communists. So, Catholicism is not going to be a, a real sell either place. He comes back in after uh, the, the fall of the French, the French takeoff, and he comes back in to now set up the uh, sort of political machine that he'd wanted to set up back then, and he thinks, well, I'm the Catholic guy, I can trust Catholics to be on my side, and he sets up uh, his uh, Catholic uh, family clan party, and because the peace accords mean that there's free movement between the communist-dominated North and the non-communist-dominated South, all of the believing Catholics are leaving the North, and they are encouraged by the CIA, uh, who also want Diem to have a, a, a electoral base. And so they, they flood South, uh, and uh, they wind up being a large activist minority, which can often, you know, uh, have a, a great uh, political impact out of um, uh, out of, out of uh, proportion to its actual numbers, and better and uh, better than that, uh, DMs. I think it's his brother-in-law, something like that, is the guy that sort of runs the election uh, in the South to determine who's going to be in charge of the South, and that sort of uh, sets it up that he that he wins that election, and he wins it. Uh, what it, what is pretty clearly a corrupt election, whether or not it is an inaccurate and corrupt election, we can never know. Uh, he ran against the emperor. Uh, Bao Dai, who wanted to just still be emperor and doesn't understand why he couldn't be emperor uh, anymore, any more than I think Diem understood why, you know, being a Japanese puppet was going to be bad for him in the long run. But they forbade Bao Dai from campaigning, and so that alone is enough to sort of taint that election. And then the end result is he's in charge of South Vietnam as uh, the Viet Minh uh, and uh, Viet Cong insurgency are, you know, springing up in the primarily in the western part of the country, uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, et cetera, et cetera, and in the more rural parts, which are the less Catholic parts of Vietnam. So he's got 
sort of an ongoing, low-burning civil war that he is uh, solving as best he can with the same sort of, you know, kill the guys who are doing it and prevent them from having political activity uh, stuff that you generally do if you're sort of a uh, an authoritarian spirit. Right, and he and his uh, brother and his uh, brother's uh, wife, who's a particularly nasty bit of business, decide that uh, during this, since you have all these problems, what they really need to do is start persecuting Buddhism. Yes, because the Buddhists are opposed to the war against the uh, communists, first of all, because the war is being carried out primarily against Buddhist villages and Buddhist uh, tribes, and second of all, because as Buddhists they're against war, and also because, of course, a lot of these guys in the Buddhist hierarchy have been infiltrated by uh, Ho Chi Minh, who is not a guy to let grass grow under his feet when there's a chance to destabilize the uh, southern half of the country. So there's a lot of things going on, and rather than try and engage with the Buddhists in a political way, uh, or rather a democratic way, um, it's certainly a political way, he decides to start uh, shutting down local Buddhism uh, and thus triggering a great deal of uh, colorful protest, including a number of uh, monks setting themselves on fire as a uh, protest against the increasingly authoritarian measures that the DM government has taken. Right, and we tend to think about this now as those images we uh, are in, in the West, we just go, oh, well, that was a protest of the war. But uh, really more specifically, it was a protest of persecution of the Buddhist majority by the uh, by the government in the name of the Catholic minority. Yeah, and, and the, the way that um, uh, DM was attempting to um, uh, to control... The insurgency was what was called the Strategic Hamlet Program, where Diem's uh, troops, who were, of course, led by Catholics, would come into a probably Buddhist village, and they would say, okay, you're now the mayor of this village, and we're going to put a fort around you, and we're going to leave a garrison of troops to guard you, and you can't leave your village because then you're going to be thought of as trading with the enemy, which, in fairness, they probably were, but in, also, who's who are you to come in and turn my village into a into an armed camp instead of a perfectly nice village. And that attempt to sort of consolidate the peasant population and force the Viet Cong out into the open led to probably as much um, uh, uh, bad feeling and problems for DM in the South as it actually did to cut off the Viet Cong. Uh, we'll never know how well the, uh, strategic, the strategic Hamlet policy might or might not have worked because, of course, um, DM is assassinated. Uh, during the coup d'etat against him, uh, some somewhere in the middle of it. The, Brit the British used to say it takes nine years to fight a counterinsurgency campaign, and uh, Diem did not get nine years. Right, and uh, in part he didn't get them because the uh, new U.S. ambassador, Henry Cabot Lodge, arrives on the scene and figures that he's going to be much more active than a usual ambassador and sort of uh, facilitates this coup. And in fact, we have audio of the White House inner cabinet uh, discussing the imminent coup, and all of them kind of know it's a terrible idea and that it's going to make uh, a bad situation even worse, yet they're, uh, the thing that wins the day is, well, we kind of gave him the impression that we wanted him to do something, and though it wasn't this, it'll really leave him hanging out to dry if we stop him. And so it's a, a weird uh, a bit of clustery fudge all around, which you, with your time machine, are now going to fix. How do you fix it? Well, um, I, since this is a question that is posed by Simon Rogers, my first instinct is to do what he said he wants and make sure that Richard Nixon defeats John F. Kennedy for the presidency in 1960. 
And that, of course, will prevent the anti-DM coup. That will possibly prevent the slow infiltration of special forces into Vietnam, because Nixon at least had bought into the Eisenhower-era decision that, no, Vietnam is not actually worth an American troop involvement, because it is tangential to the real concern of stopping uh, communism in East Asia. And so you, you very possibly have the result of a uh, of DM either succeeding or failing on his own terms without any great in U.S. involvement. Probably there will still be some degree of uh, CIA backing because the CIA was kind of writing its own rules around then, and Nixon probably wouldn't have done anything about that. But you don't have the situation where DM is simultaneously our man in Vietnam, and we kill him, and now we own the even worse military government that takes over after DM because you you always have to remember DM was terrible. Uh, uh, as a human being, and his people went around and did an awful lot of nasty things to Buddhists and to uh, the, uh, the villagers, but the guys who followed Yim were all of that, plus incompetent, plus even more corrupt. And so the the Diem coup liter- is what literally makes South Vietnam functionally ungovernable. It simply can't function as a state because it didn't have any political pol- uh, parties until Diem invented one, and then when you behead that and make sure you can never reconstitute it as a as a going concern, you're left with nothing but who's the guy holding the military payroll, which is not really the basis on which to run a country. At the very least, uh, it's possible, once I have put President Nixon in uh, power, to continue to use my influence uh, to get a, uh, a uh, constructive engagement situation going on in which further aid to DM is conditioned on real land reform, which is, of course, what fixes the problem in Malaya when the British are doing it at roughly the same time. So it's not entirely impossible that, again, because Vietnam is not seen as a strategic bulwark, that the uh, Defense Department of the CIA might be open to more experimentation. Because, again, this is before they've all got their own fingers in the pie. You've got individual uh, agency assets who are backing DM, but you can simply rotate those guys out, put new guys in, and say, uh, tell them to do land reform like they're doing in Malaysia, or that's it, and he gets no more bullets, and then we'll see how he likes it. Right, because the what winds up happening is that the Americans wind up with the worst of both worlds in that they own the situation, but they're still unable to control it, and that their attempt at a counterinsurgency program uh, then becomes an insa- assassination program in the hands of the people who uh, came after Diem, and uh, the sort of escalating madness of that uh, conflict uh, just keeps blowing up and up. And keep in mind, Diem does actually have a land reform program. He's just very bad and slow at doing it. And, and lacks the credibility since he's persecuting the Buddhist majority. Right, exactly. But again, that's the sort of thing where you, you're not forcing him to do something he's not doing. You're sort of forcing him to put his money where his mouth is, or you're putting American money where his mouth is. You know, given the costs involved of fighting a war in Vietnam, it surely would have been even simpler for the United States government to go in and say, all right, here's the money that you owe all these peasants. Uh, we're going to just distribute it to the peasants and cut you a, a bullet-buying check for the remainder. And that probably could have solved the situation, because as long as DM 
uh, isn't actually out anything, and the peasants, he, he doesn't not want the peasants to get the land, he just doesn't want to actually have to pay them and um, uh, and set them up with anything. And I think that, again, an American, uh, maybe not an ambassador, but whoever would have been in charge of, of setting policy for Vietnam... It wouldn't have been again, Henry would have been a, Lodge. <laughs> no, uh, but it's going to be someone of that ilk. I mean, you know, Massachusetts Republican-type guy, most probably. Although, you know, what the hell? Maybe I could, uh, given a little time, find some Wyoming Republican to put in charge of it in, the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in an entirely different uh, approach who is not going to necessarily care, you know, whether or not DM went to uh, a proper college, but is going to more care about whether or not the actual policy gets right. carried out. He's not going to arrive on a scene and six months later be a co-conspirator in a coup. Someone's going to no. color within the lines. <laughs> exactly. And who's going to understand, uh, again, because of the backing that I've provided to Nixon to get him elected, he's going to understand that there is some degree of support higher up in the administration for him solving the Vietnam problem without any military uh, involvement and without a huge amount of expense to the Americans and without blackening our eye overseas while Nixon is invading Cuba and uh, hanging Castro from the rafters, which is what, of course, you want the president to be doing instead of messing around in Vietnam. <laughs> uh, so uh, well, I'm sure that's what Simon meant, right? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I think you had a lot of people with you until that last little bit. Um, so anyway, uh, notoriously, the 1960 election is uh, razor close, and it, uh, uh, in legend at least, uh, came down to the purchase of a number of ballot boxes uh, in your home state of Illinois. Yes, and in Texas, in fairness. And in Texas. Well, Texas goes without saying. Landslide Lyndon Johnson. Yes. Uh, so uh, is that uh, is that what you do? You make sure that there is a better ballot box control in the uh, in the state of Illinois. Better ballot box control, and I think leaking a great deal of uh, exciting Kennedy-related information that we now know to be absolutely true. Uh, prescription drug uh, blanks, for example. Uh, the names of mobster girlfriends that Kennedy is carrying on with. I think any number of things might move that election needle a bit. Does this result in perhaps not the darkest Nixon as we get in our timeline, but rather one whose paranoia is kept within utile parameters? Do we have, because, uh, you know, the, the big wound or one of the many big wounds in Nixon's insecure heart is that he, you know, lost that uh, election through what he thought was uh, uh, chicanery, chicanery um, yeah. and probably was. A lot of biographers of Nixon, and I am not a Nixon specialist, but a lot of biographers from all stretches of the of the political spectrum say that that 1960 election was really traumatic to Nixon and was very much the, well, if that's the way the game is played, that I'm going to play it better than them moment for him. At the time, he was uh, kind of a, he played political hardball. I mean, he, uh, when he ran against, I think it was Helen Gahagan Douglas uh, for Congress, he, you know, played dirty pool, uh, lots of negative campaigning, was kind of a jerk, but he was not actually criminal at any part of that, and he was not as um uh, as completely incapable of receiving meaningful out outside input as he later became, and I think if you have a Nixon presidency uh, rather than a Kennedy presidency, you you at the very least have an opportunity to move Nixon back toward what everyone thought they were getting, which was sort of the Eisenhower but younger, and instead of the um uh, Richard the Third but slight but less murderous, which is what we actually got. And so I think that you can get a better Nixon, certainly, by getting him to be president earlier. And if he starts turning into bad Nixon, well, I've still got uh, Barry Goldwater in my pocket. Right. And uh, without a uh, counterculture uh, forming in, in reaction to uh, 
the uh, the, Kennedy the, the Kennedy assassination and the, the Vietnam War. Again, his uh, he has less reason to be a paranoid ultra authoritarian, and so uh, you might get a uh, a better Nixon. Right. So uh, is this uh, is this how you get Camelot by making sure that uh, John F. Kennedy is uh, not elected, or is there still enough nastiness coming down the political pike that we uh, uh, still see the big sort of uh, break and in, in malaise and in, uh, American confidence in the seventies? I, th- I think we still see a degree of. Um social upheaval just because we have the baby boom. Now, the interesting question is, is Nixon and Lodge, are they as capable of moving civil rights through the Congress as Lyndon Johnson proved able to be? I mean, Lodge was no piker, and that's why Henry Cabot Lodge, by the way, isn't screwing up Vietnam, is because he's vice president and therefore completely useless. <laughs> but um, are they able to move civil rights through a, a, Demo- a still, you know, strongly Democratic Senate in the way that Lyndon Johnson was, because obviously Nixon was a genuine civil rights campaigner from way back. The Republican Party had always been the party of civil rights. Uh, you know, Eisenhower famously, of course, desegregates uh, the schools in, in Little Rock and et cetera. So if you get a Republican-led or at least Republican co-identified civil rights movement in which we're stripping off the idealist Democrats from the Southern Democrats, we may see an entirely different political uh, structure in, in America. If you don't if Lee Harvey Oswald doesn't shoot Nixon and um, uh, and cause a similar psychic uh, blow to the country, um, and I again don't believe that Lee Moyers, uh, Bill Moyers, is going to be driving around um, uh, uh, telling President Nixon to leave the top off his limousine, um, so there's there's the, there's a good chance that we get we still are going to have some degree of social upheaval. We're still going to see the baby boom come in with their flower power and their and their. Uh, and their uh, marijuana and such, but we're not necessarily going to have the same degree of radicalized politics that we did in the actual 1960s, just because there's not going to have been the assassination of President Nixon. There's not probably going to have been the assassination of King and Kennedy, because possibly it's going to be John F. Kennedy running in 1968 instead of R.F. Kennedy. Um, you, you never can tell, right? It's going to be an interesting a batch of years, but it's certainly going to prevent Vietnam from having become a major thing because Nixon at the time is thinking not about Southeast Asia at all. He's thinking about uh, the Caribbean. He's really concerned about Cuba at that point and secondarily about uh, Europe. Well, I think you've just cheered up uh, people on the other side of the aisle at the thought that they could have uh, still have a Kennedy presidency, but have it uh, later on and uh, enable him to dodge both the literal and the political uh, bullets of the uh, early 60s. Yes, and if I've destroyed John F. Kennedy's reputation uh, effectively enough in 1960, there is still Robert Kennedy, who could still run, um, although without the mystique of his brother, it would be a, a, a bigger uh, climb uphill. But again, um, we, we, can never, we can never know uh, necessarily how the 64 and the 68 will, will shake out, because it's going to be a different Democratic Party in, in very important and very huge ways. So, right, and in know, the timeline today, you have in that case you don't have the inversion of the Republicans taking over in the South and adopting the uh, the, the mantle of the resistance to the civil rights, and that's a well, you still thing. have a, an ever more Republican South because the South was Republicaning well before the civil rights movement ever began. The South was Republicaning because the South suddenly got a middle class, and middle class people ever since McKinley have been voting Republican. And if you look at you know Eisenhower, for example. His election totals in the South kept him increasing over his term, even though he was very much a pro-civil rights Republican. Um, and you saw 
uh, the Republican numbers in the South increasing on a lot of levels before 1963. So I don't know that the Southern strategy of 1968 is as big a deal as people say it is, but you certainly at least have that narrative um, uh, splintered, if not completely eradicated. Right, and the, the just the cultural polarization in in the absence of the Vietnam War uh, does ne- never becomes as acute. Yeah, I mean, if you notice, the protests stopped um, uh, immediately after Nixon ended the draft. And the war continued for three more years. So people didn't mind the war. What they minded was getting drafted to fight the war. Uh, crucial distinction. <laughs> yes. It turns out to be not not so difficult to uh, wage uh, a lot of uh, wars in essentially serial fashion as long as you've uh, mostly got a volunteer class doing it. Yeah, although that might have n- never uh, happened without something like Vietnam to demonstrate the weaknesses of the all-volunteer, uh, uh, the weaknesses of the drafty army. Uh, because part of the problem with the, the military was there were people in it who didn't want to be in it, and as we discussed earlier, who are perfectly capable of griefing the game of fight effectively in Vietnam. Right, <laughs> while, and, and that concept playing was it. N- notoriously <laughs> just, you know, went completely uh, sideways in a, in a way that, uh, you know, if you envision a, a, a all-professional army, uh, that would be a completely different uh, situation. <laughs> a completely different sort of sideways. Yeah. <laughs> we had to, we had to figure out a whole new way to screw up counterinsurgency with an all with an all volunteer army. Uh, well, I think uh, <laughs> we left people considering all sorts of possible uh, futures, which is the duty of Ken's time machine, and can therefore uh, declare victory in our time and uh, get onto those helicopters on the top of the roof and get out of this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us out of murder ends by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or fairy door by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.